0: You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against This Dream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced level class. And what that means is that I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. Uh, That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include the basics. We've been talking about the new Manual of Insight by Mahasi Sedo in a new translation by the Vipassana Metta Foundation. And we've been going through it uh, slowly. We've just started on the third chapter, having completed uh, Purification of Mind. And it's um, the chapter is entitled... Absolute and conventional realities, or ultimate and and uh, relative realities, might be another way that you've heard about it. Um, so the question then is, what is reality? <coughs> ultimate reality. We cannot say that conditional relative realities are ultimate. Um, only timeless, immutable reality should be accepted as ultimate. Ultimate reality consists only of the following elements because they are absolute and immutable facts of experience, mind, mental factors, matter, and nirvana. Do you notice that we live in an age where almost everything is ultimate? (laughs) I don't know, I've noticed that. Uh, I read probably five times a day that this is the best, the most fantastic, the greatest, the unsurmountable. So um, like a lot of these translations of polywords, I have um, some sense of difficulty with the word ultimate, but um, and because it's a translation of a polyword, what they mean by ultimate Uh, in this specific meditation sense is not actually what you may think of as the word meaning an ultimate irreducible phenomena is called an ultimate reality so what we are talking about here is ultimate phenomenon or irreducible phenomenon or uh, engaging in the smallest part or piece of a process What we learn from others is also not necessarily true, so it should not be considered ultimate reality. On the other hand, what we empirically experience ourselves is never false but always true. Therefore, mind, mental factors, matter, and nirvana are called ultimate reality because they can be empirically experienced, as in the Abhidhamma commentary. An ultimate, personally experienced phenomena is called ultimate reality. The expression empirically experienced refers to ultimate realities, not to illusion like magic and mirages that should not be accepted. The word ultimate reality refers to an ultimate reality um, that should not be accepted by hearsay and so on. An ultimate personally experienced phenomena is called an ultimate reality. So what we're looking at here is not something that's tested not something that's scientifically verifiable, not something that can be repeated. The verification can be repeated in, in a subsequent uh, experiment. But what we're talking about is our sensing experience of uh, whatever happened, so empirically uh, sensed by ourselves. So ultimate reality is based in the sensing experience out of uh, our uh, concept of uh, self and world arise. Is that making sense? Hearsay in this particular thing would be a description that somebody gives of something that you have not directly experienced yourself so it is our our direct experience through our capacity to sense that is considered an ultimate reality and then the thing that you make it into is the relative reality is that clear phenomena that we can personally experience are called empirically experienced what truly exists as well as ultimate truth There are 57 of these ultimately real phenomena, the five aggregates, the 12 sense bases, the 18 elements, and the 22 mental faculties. According to the commentary, these 57 classes of phenomena are called empirically experienced or ultimate reality. They can be summarized into four ultimate realities of mind, mental factors, matter, and nirvana, Or mind and matter in brief. For simplicity's sake, I will refer to them as mind and matter. You have the capacity to sense something. Uh, So that we would say that because you can see, you have eye sensitivity. Because you can hear, you have uh, ear sensitivity. Because you can taste, you have taste sensitivity. Because you can smell, you have smell sensitivity because you can feel in the body, you have a feel sensitivity. And then, uh, because you have the capacity to sense, if you should meet an object that, that can be sensed, then a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, and awareness knows that. So if you see something, you have... Eye consciousness, if you hear something, you have ear consciousness, if you taste something, you have taste consciousness, and so on. But it arises from the capacity to sense meeting an object. And so the, this is the basis of ultimate reality in uh, the Theravada tradition of, of Buddhist thought. Is that pretty clear? When a magician conjures gold, silver, or gems out of a brick, a piece of paper, or a stone, people are under the illusion that these are genuinely gold, silver, and gems. Such imaginary things are said to be not genuinely existing or not personally experienced, since they are mistaken for something genuine, just as a thirsty deer mistakes a mirage for water from a distance. Concepts such as man, woman, hand, foot, and so on have this kind of illusionary nature. On the other hand, mind and matter can be experienced as they really are, so they are said to be ultimate reality, personally experienced and genuinely existing. Why would the commentary suggest that a a woman does not uh, empirically exist or a man does not empirically exist or a foot does not empirically exist? So, uh, what is a man? What is a woman? These are concepts. They aren't actually a description of the sensing experience. So, when you look at someone and you see them, what is it that you actually see? Uh, so you, you have a retina, which is a, in the back of the eyeball, which is sensitive to light. It has rods and cones. Maybe you know this. Rods uh, are uh, something that they see basically in black and white, and they uh, define shape and contour and line. And then cones uh, add color to that. When light strikes the retina, that sensing experience is then transported into the back of the brain. The eyes are actually the only sensing organ that's connected directly to the brain. The back third of the brain is involved in processing visual stimulation from the eye. You see light and you see it in rods and cones and it goes into the brain for processing. Uh, did you know that uh, children who are born blind at birth, who have sight restored later, are not able to see because the back of the brain has not been trained to decode the sensing experience and understand what the stimulation is. And if it goes on for too long, uh, that capacity is lost. Uh, my my dad, for instance, was a uh, an eye surgeon and. He specialized in infants and if a baby was born cross-eyed and the surgery was not done in the first year of life they would, for a lifelong the capacity of 3D seeing would be lost even if the, the, the cross-eyed was corrected after that so it really is this process of both sensing and the, the making the sensing into something But when we see someone, we see the sensing experience and then the brain creates the image of what that sensing experience means. And our conditioning would be the thing that that creates the the idea of what a, a man looks like and what a woman looks like. You notice in our culture, by and large, it's a binary. You're either male or female. There's actually a singlet in the brain that that uh, makes the determination of whether you're whether you think somebody is male or female it, it doesn't mean it's always accurate but it's also involved in language it shifts the the use of pronouns uh, based on your perception of somebody's sex it switches on or off uh, sexual arousal based on your perception of someone's sex I think one of the reasons that people get so angry if they're if they're deceived in genders, because their arousal mechanism is engaged. Uh, and, and if, they, if I created a sense of maleness that, or femaleness that doesn't include arousal by the, the same sex, it it's frightening. And often the response to that is anger. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. So the ultimate reality is what you sense, and the relative reality, the conventional of reality, is the thing that you make it into, the sensing experience. For example, when people see a, vis- a visible form with their eyes, they know I see a visible form, or the visible form that is seen exists. This visible form is what really exists and what is genuinely known at the moment of seeing. It is not an illusion like the gold, silver, or gems created by a magician or a mirage mistaken for water. Seeing would not be possible without a visible form. Therefore, a visible form that can be seen with the eyes is called a reality that genuinely exists or that is personally experienced. If a form is personally experienced, it is called an ultimate reality. The experience of seeing a visible form is followed by a mental process that investigates and determines it to be of a certain shape, tall or short, spherical or flat, square or round, woman or man, face or arm, and so on. This mental process of investigation can only be experienced in an obvious way when we encounter an especially novel object since the investigation of new objects takes time. This type of investigation is not usually apparent since it doesn't take that much time to investigate an object that one has seen before and that one is familiar with. What I find so fascinating about these kinds of descriptions is that this is a very well studied experience uh, of how we process and now that we have machines that can test the time frame of, of, um, of brain time, we know that actually the experience of the present moment that we take for granted actually runs a half a second behind what's happening and that the, the mind just smooths over the delay. So in order to experience the, the process of the mind attempting to identify a sensing pattern that is unknown, the process of that would have to last longer than a half a second in order for you to have the experience of it. If it lasts shorter than a half a second then it enters consciousness, it it enters conscious awareness already formed and you just have the experience of it being formed. Uh, At least conceptually, is that making sense? In order for it to be an ultimate experience, you would have to sense it directly. If I just tell you about it, then it's what we consider hearsay, and that is a relative reality. My description is a relative reality. To have a genuine, ultimate experience, you would need to directly watch the sensing experience, exceed a half a second, and watch the mind attempting to figure out what it is that you're sensing. Why do you think it's important to to pay attention to this? What do you get out of it? It's it's an effortful investigation. What is it, uh, what comes out of the distinction between knowing what a sensing experience is and uh, what the mind uh, turns it into? Have you ever made a mistake in sensing something? Have you ever had the experience that the mind creates something and and because it looks just the same, just as reliable and solid as everything else that the mind creates, that you can rely on the creation of the mind even though it could be wildly off in its accuracy? Do you ever have the sense of big, angry self arising or big, jealous self arising or big, envious self arising? Uh, only when you had the, uh, a better understanding of what was happening, you could see that that was an inappropriate response to the conditions of the present moment. So we want to be able to touch into the ultimate reality of things so that we can compare them to the way that we make them. My favorite statistic around this is that motorcycles with one headlight are nine times more likely to be in an accident than a motorcycle with two headlights. Particularly on commuter routes, the most common uh, excuse or explanation that drivers who run motorcycles off the road give is that they weren't there. And this is actually probably an accurate statement. One of the things about the mind is that if it can rely on an old construction, an old image, uh, and it doesn't have to use the energy to update, you could be looking at a picture in the mind that was made a couple of weeks ago and not notice the difference. Has that ever happened? You've come into a place and noticed that something was different, and you remarked on it being different. and and then you were informed that you'd been there five times and hadn't noticed the difference. I, went, uh, I was in therapy, and I went in and I said, uh, God, you got a new rug, it's really great. And he said, yeah, I got a new rug six months ago. You've been here 20 times. <laughs> and I hadn't bothered to update it. I hadn't trained my mind to be constantly updating Do you ever look at somebody and say, gee, what's happened? You look thinner, and they're not actually thinner, they've just shaved off their beard. Do you know what I'm talking about? So this is this uh, paying attention to the sensing experience or being able to uh, contact the sensing experience so that we can compare it to the thing that we make it into. The function of eye consciousness is only to see visible forms, not to ascertain physical gestures or movements. However, succeeding mental processes follow so quickly that ordinary people think that they see as if with their realized the movement known by the succeeding mental processes of investigation. So the untrained mind conflates the, the sensing and the knowing what the sensing is and regards them as the same. For example, when we see a hand moving, our eye consciousness sees only the visible form. It is not able to know that it is a hand or it is moving. The mind is very fast, however, so the movement that the succeeding, the succeeding mind of investigation knows is taken to have been... Geez, that's not making sense to me. Let's try again. The mind is very fast, however, so the movement that the succeeding mind of investigation knows is taken to have been seen with the eyes. Ordinary people cannot distinguish between preceding and succeeding mental processes. On the other hand, a meditator who has practiced insight proficiently can recognize the mental process of seeing visible form as distinct from the subsequent mental processes that is known uh, as a hand and movement. So the polytext text described, for instance, as an example of this, someone spinning a torch, and that what you see is a circle of flame. But the reality is that the torch has a single flame, and it's not a circle of flame. It's just that because of the way that the body-mind senses things, the illusion of a circle of flame arises in the mind. Another example is this: is found in people who cannot read well. They must read slowly to comprehend a piece of writing from the context, carefully uh, reading word by word. The mental process of investigation is apparent to them because it proceeds so slowly. On the other hand, for those who read well, the mental process of investigation is much faster and therefore cannot be clearly detected. You're not reading, I'm reading, but <clears throat> you are listening to the sound of my voice. What is the sensing aspect of the sound of my voice, and can you pull it apart so that the knowing what it is isn't matched on there um, i don't I only speak English so that um, I, I often use an example of uh, someone who speaks a, a foreign language um, I'm, I'm going to Myanmar, and, and I listen to the sound of speech in Myanmar. Um, it's a tonal language. Each word has four meanings depending on the tone with which you say it. But I, can, I cannot tell the words even um, from the series of sounds that is uh, the Myanmarese language. It just sounds like sound to me. Um, because I have made no associations, no, no uh, affiliations to the pattern of sound, um, I don't know the words, and because I don't know the words, I've not associated any meaning to them. So it's just pure sound. <clears throat> but if you're listening to me and you've been conditioned to understand English, then it may be very hard for you not to just hear the words not to see, uh, hear the words forming sentences, not to associate meaning to what I'm saying. Uh, uh, Can you hear the next three sentences I'm speaking purely as sound, not associate any meaning to the words, not derive any meaning from the sentences? That would be uh, uh, the test. Uh, The reason you can't do that really is because the habit of uh, identifying these patterns and attaching meaning to them uh, takes less than a half a second. You can't even watch the mind doing it. But maybe if I used a word that you didn't know the definition of, you could watch the mind attempting to figure out the meaning of the word based on the context, based on the other words that are being said. And then you would watch the mind attempting to figure out what the meaning was. Is that making sense? If we subtract all of the clearly visible forms and shapes from the matter or substance that we take to be a woman, a man, and so on, no such woman or man would be left to be seen. What we actually see is only visible form and not a woman, a man, and such. We see only a collection of visible forms. We cannot see a woman, a man, and such. The seeing of a woman, man, and such. Uh, is a concept, it does not truly exist as imagined. All right. So then the question is, since you have the relative or conventional reality of this discussion, because I've described it to you, you have hearsay. How would you have a ultimate reality experience of this? So this is where the practice of meditation comes in. How can we focus the practice of meditation in such a way that you would begin to have a uh, ultimate reality of the sensing experience without needing to fixate it into something? One of the problems with the untrained mind is that the habit of fixating things is so well entrenched that it's very difficult not to fixate. Um, Because the, the habit of fixating things happens um, most of the time before it even reaches awareness uh, that process is concluded and we just experience in the moment the fixated version of things so um, there's a couple of ways to do this that that I find useful one of them I call Twilight meditation and that's where you sit in a room that's naturally lit at dusk, sitting eyes open, so, and then as the light begins to uh, withdraw, as the sun <coughs> sets, watching what happens to the visual field, what you'll notice first off is that uh, the image becomes black and white. Do you ever notice at night that the imagery of the world that at night seems quite black and white? It isn't that there's an absence of color, it's that the cones in the eyes require much more light to be reactive. And so in a lower light situation, there isn't enough light to activate them, so the color portion of the image simply doesn't happen. And then as the light continues to, to dim, uh, if there isn't enough light for the, the, the edges and the contours of the, the things that you're looking at to be seen, then the mind uh, begins to uh, struggle to identify what you're seeing and then you'll notice that the visual field rolls into flow just dots and then fixates and rolls and fixates and rolls and fixates and the fixation of the visual field looks as solid and real as any representation the mind might make but you know because of the distortion of the perception of things that it can't be that way because you're sitting in a room that doesn't look that way. And then if uh, often people have a frightening response to that, or a fear response to that, which tends to fixate things. Or you move the eyes, or uh, focus the eyes, and and that tends to snap the actual room back into place, and, and then it'll drift and roll. And then as the light gets uh, too low, to even cause a reactivity to the the rods, then the visual field will go dark and you'll have the internal visual experience rolling in the eyes, visible. Is That making sense is a description of a technique. Another technique would be to listen to exterior sound intentionally for sounds that you don't know what they are and watch the mind attempting to uh, understand what they are and if that process goes on for longer than a half a second you'll be able to watch the mind attempting to identify what the sound is and then if it thinks it knows it will become that sound and all of the attendant meaning that you have associated with that will come and attach itself and then if there's more evidence that convinces the mind that that isn't the sound that will detach and it will begin to roll again Looking for what that sound might be. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Does meaning only get uh, determined by language? No, it could be visual, could be feeling in the body. Okay. It's, and likely all three. Um, so that's a sound meditation. Um, I used to love to do sound meditation here, and then they put in soundproof windows. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really has limited the capacity of, of um, this place for that. Um, so what I was going to suggest we do is turn the lights off and, uh, and then do an eyes-open meditation uh, and see whether or not uh, you can uh, relax enough in the practice so that the visual field uh, breaks up into flow and you have a sense of what the actual sensing experience is like. Is that making sense? So what we'll do is we'll start with a period of, uh, of metta to concentrate the mind and then we'll move into a, a eyes-open meditation. In the eyes-open meditation, you want to fixate your view... Uh, eight or ten feet in front of you and uh, not allow the eyes to move. You may notice that the eyes want to move and one of the reasons for that is that the way that you create this image of a solid, in-focus room is that the eyes are constantly moving, taking snapshots of focus and then the mind is creating from those hundreds of snapshots of focus Uh, a solid, in-focus, detailed representation of what's in front of you. So to still the eyes and not allow them to move uh, is necessary because each time the eyes move it tends to refixate the image that's in front of you and in order to get the image to drift the eyes need to be stable. Uh, You want to relax the focus And what you may notice is that the eyes sometimes then refocus themselves. Um, If they refocus themselves, they'll reset the image back to solid. And we're trying to move in the direction of just a flowing image. Um, Often the eyes refocus, the eyes move in response to a fear reaction to the visual field beginning to dissolve. So if you notice that uh, there's a fear reaction to the, the visual field beginning to dissolve, that's pretty ordinary. The reason that there's a fear response is that we like to rely on, a, in particular, sight space as an um, accurate representation of the world. And that when you begin to have the insight that actually you're basically making it up, uh, that tends to undermine the confidence you have in the, the permanent nature of reality. So we're opening to this uh, idea, softening to this idea that the ultimate reality is the sensing and the thing that we make it into uh, is very fluid, very changeable. The the ultimate insight or the... <coughs> I shouldn't use the word ultimate. The... Um, the um, desired outcome of this, one of the insights that's so important in this is that we begin to rely less on our um, present moment formulation and are uh, open to the possibility of of comparing it to the uh, ultimate reality. So we get into a habit of mind of comparing the ultimate experience of reality with the conventional experience of reality so that we can detect any distortions that we might have uh, made in creating the conventional reality. Most of the time we act from the place of conventional reality in the actions that we take, and so our karma is often based in the perception of how it is. And if we're uh, constantly distorting that perception, it can create uh, unfortunate karma through the actions that we take. So this, this softening of our, our, our um, reliance on uh, conventional reality is the part of what we're attempting to do here. Is that all pretty clear in terms of the instructions? Uh-huh. How would you frame what conventional reality is? I would say that conventional reality is what you make of the ultimate reality, so the sensing experience. Um, using the example uh, from the text, when you look around the room, are you able to identify uh, uh, men from women? Do you have to work hard at it? Nobody here seems to be particularly androgynous. (laughs) But when I looked around the room, my mind easily snapped male-female, male-female, or man-woman, man-woman. There was no, not a pause of uh, deliberation deliberation in anyone that I looked at. Was that also what your experience was? So we're all pretty conventional in our presentation. Uh Do you find a a cultural conditioning involved in, in this that we all are taught? This stuff is this stuff, or is it just within our own mind? No, I think that there's tons of cultural. Uh, yeah, the the way that you can identify a, a man from a woman in this room is entirely dependent on our culture, and our presentation, and what what clothing is considered masculine and what clothing is considered feminine. What uh, everything, all of that is cultural. That's the conventional reality, all of that. If you strip all of that away, what you have left is the ultimate reality, which is just the sensing of light. That's the thing that we can always come back to, to determine if we've had much uh, distortion built into. One of the the stories um, that comes from the canon is that if, A farmer walks into a hut, he sees a snake, it's night and it's dark and he sees a snake in a corner and he takes an axe and he kills the snake. And then when he lights the candle, he sees that he's chopped up his rope and that there actually wasn't a snake there. But in that moment, the coil, the mind went to snake and he acted from that. So we want to be present for this sensing experience and what we make the sensing experience into so we can have some sense of that you know you have a mind state if you have the mind state of anger it can be very distorting in what you make the the sensing experience into if your mind is kind it has a a distorting factor in how it creates the perception of the world Uh uh-huh Um, it's a good question you you want to leave them on because um, you want you need to be able to tell where the eye is focusing or not so you want to place your gaze keep it wherever you place it and then let the uh, the soap the focus go soft but it's better to do it with the glasses on if you wear glasses all right let it's begin. So, solid or flowing? What's hmm. flowing supposed to really look like? If it really goes, it's just, it's just a, sort of a swirl of dots. So does it look like a wonder of side of <laughs> No, literally a, just a field of dots. That, yeah, I didn't know, like when you said flow, that's what I was getting, it's like, like pixelated like, yeah. light, like light like 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 instead of making up the object you would just see like the pixel light that's it. pixels like like it was like if it was like on the tv <coughs> screen if it was yeah really pixelated that's it but then my mind would like it was harder for me than when we were like when we meditate on like the breath because then my mind would wander into something else i have to go back to it mm-hmm. like it was m- more difficult than just sitting with my eyes closed right because I'd be distracted on other objects, or like my eyes would just want them to keep, like, not keep focusing there. Right. Yep. Did you notice that the eyes kept moving even though you insisted that they not? Did you notice the focus change even though you insisted not do that? Who's doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Who's actually in charge of this if you can't control it? <laughs> <laughs> That would be an exploration around self and no-self. Anybody notice a fear reaction if the world started to slip into just sensing? that's, That's what it was for me over and over again. Fear and then my eyes would change focus and everything would be solid again. Easy to concentrate on this or no? I found it pretty easy to concentrate. Can you, like, sort of fool with your eyes? Like, sort of, you know, not have them wide open, but have them sort of half open? Um, Or is that cheating? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's impossible to cheat at this. Um, I don't know, I just, my eyes are, I just keep them wide open. Where, where, what you want to do is, you want to be able to get to the place where in full sun you can just let the whole visual field dissolve. It's easier to begin to do this in the dark because the edges are harder to see and so the mind has to work harder at it and it tends to give up and just flow. But you do, it would be ideal if you could do it. Anytime you want it, just not fixate anymore and it just flows. That would be very free if you could do that. That would be very free. It happens like every night at sunset. If you happen to be watching sunset, everything just gets like you, you mm-hmm. describe we've, it. We've spent many days on, on Venice Beach looking out at the water uh, doing twilight meditation so it's, it can be lovely a little chilly this time of year but in the, in the summer <laughs> so when you're flowing and you're seeing you know fuzzy pixels you can see that but you can still know what they are right so then are you not flowing there if you know what they are yeah not completely because I see the figures I mean I, like I see the pixels sometimes but then I know in the back of my mind like I know these like are people because I in the room. Right. So that's not flowing. Well, so I had all these people in front of me, but at, at a certain point when it was really flowing, it would shift into sort of blobs of uh, dark and light with no real detail right. at all. But visually, it looks different. I'm just saying, like, like you're intellectually, you know, because you know you're in the room. Right. So yeah. that would be an indication that some sense of self is there. But if you were, if you flowed and the flow went so deep that it also dissolved the sense of self, then it would dissolve language as well. You can get into a flow state where you can't really even locate the body anymore. It's just all sensing. Is that where the fear arises? I think the fear uh, comes in response to it not being the realization actually that the Solidness of self and world are made up in the mind they're not made up in the sensing when you really get into that insight the, uh, the way that the mind fixates things looks absolutely convincing uh, but it can do anything to it so uh, you may have greatly distorted the presentation and it looks as convincing as something that's not distorted Unless you can begin to see the process of, of the, the creation of the conventional reality out of the ultimate reality. Then you can begin to see, oh, the, the mindset of anger is there and all of the stuff that I've created out of the ultimate experience is distorted by the perception of anger. Mm-hmm. Can you act on flow? Uh, sure. You can be in flow and, and respond. You're just responding from no-self rather than from self. Probably a better place to respond. You know, uh, do, have you ever read a book called Blink? Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, the more you're in, in a no-self a no state, the, the more intuitive you are in terms of what might work and the more you're in self the more limited your your capacity to to process and choose is have you read flow by mihai chichikhayi? i'm not sure can you tell me a little, it, little? it's like he talks about the state of, of that state of like what it was studying like happiness and it felt like most people were happy when they were doing things oh yeah yeah the state of flow and it's kind of similar to that same idea happiness exists only in the present moment there's no happy in the happy there's no happy in the future or the past so can you come can you hold yourself in the present moment how are you going to do that if you can't even hold your eyes still <laughs> 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 all right so this is deepening your practice deepening your practice is intended uh, To deepen your practice, and so I'm going to be advocating ways for you to do that. One way to do that is retreat practice. Um, If you've not been on retreat, um, then um, it may be interested, you may be interested in exploring why you don't go, since it is a great way to deepen your practice. We have a couple of retreats coming up. Um, uh, uh, Vinnie Ferraro and Noah Levine are doing a Memorial Day retreat out in Joshua Tree, just four days. Um, And I'm doing a uh, a nine-night, so a ten-day retreat um, uh, on the East Coast in upstate New York over Memorial Day weekend as well. So if you wanted to do a longer retreat, you could. The retreat in Joshua Tree is a Four Foundations retreat, so a Theravada Buddhism Four Foundations retreat. And I do a a metta vipassana retreat, which is more in the Burmese style of practice. So the first four days of the retreat are all metta, and then we go into all vipassana. Uh, The four-day retreat is a four-day retreat. You can come to my retreat for three nights, for six nights, or for nine nights, depending on how your schedule works. Um, They haven't announced uh, any other retreats uh, for the remainder of the year, but they'll come up. And we also have other retreat centers uh, uh, in, in the area that you might go on retreat. But the idea is for you to make at least one residential retreat this year. Uh, so in order to do that, you need to pick the retreat you're going to go to. You need to sign up for it. You need to pay for it. You need to tell everyone you know that you're going so you'll be publicly humiliated if you chicken out. <laughs> and then if you have trepidation about going on retreat, uh, bring it to class and we can talk about what it is mostly what happens to people is that they're frightened about the silence um, and, and it's, a, it's a reasonable fear because we use um, that kind of small interchange with people as a way of emotionally regulating and to go into an environment where you don't have that can be very dysregulating. so we do understand that and we have ways of addressing it on retreat so that it that doesn't have to be so frightening Carol? Oh, yeah. Um, I wanted to invite everyone here for a practice retreat. On Saturday, Blake Obram- Bramovich, who has studied with uh, um, both Shinzen Young and George, uh, and he will be doing a retreat from 9 a.m. until 5. It's not going to be fully silent, um, uh, but you'll have an opportunity to... Dip into that kind of retreat like environment. Uh, So it's here, 9 to 5. This coming Saturday, I'll have flyers out in the front. Great. No one will be turned away for lack of funds. I want to fill the room. Okay. Good. Um, Are you stretching or do you have your hand up? (laughs) See, you can make it into anything. I'm an ardent support in addition to retreats, meditation centers, because the Vipassana practice can be difficult. You can get into you know, challenging experiences with yourself. Um, and it's useful to have people that are also practicing in order to engage in, in conversation and get support around your practice. What better place to meet a fellow meditator than at a meditation center? in order to do that then you have to have a meditation center to come to and I know that we've been here a long time and you may think that uh, the the finances of a meditation center are simple but I can assure you that they're always precarious and we rely on your individual act of generosity each time you come. So we practice generosity actually to open our heart to the path to other people to 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 um, You know, being alive in the world Um, we've crunched the numbers and we think that uh, given the number of people who come and what the cost is to keep the place open that $15 is a good amount each time you come but uh, this is a practice of generosity so we want you to be practicing that in a meaningful way so that if $15 isn't uh, significant to you uh, practice a, a level of giving that has meaning if $15 is a good amount do that if it's too much practice at a lower amount. If you're not uh, resource to the point that you can contribute anything also, please be aware that we as a community are very happy to provide the space for you to come and practice in. Uh, So we take cash and credit cards out there. If you'd also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated and we'll see you... uh, I won't actually see you uh, for a month. No, wait. Yeah, for a month. I'm going to... Myanmar on Wednesday next so I'll be back in March Um, Marshall I was just going to ask that there will be sessions each Wednesday with different folks or Blake Abramovitz who's doing the, the thing on Saturday is going to cover the whole month and he will be continuing with the Deepening Your Practice curriculum just as if I were doing it except it'll be him Mm-hmm.